woken you up. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to Brooklyn's. As ever, thank you for being here in your numbers this evening. It's brilliant to see you and thank you, as ever, for supporting the Trust. Uh, a special welcome to our guests and new members this evening. I hope you enjoy the evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, I can't think of a better way of closing our 2015 series of talks than with our guests this evening. Will you please give a very, very warm welcome to Steve Parrish. working. Yes, it is. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, everything working down. I've got so many microphones on and the cameras around here. I'm a bit worried because I'm thinking I'm going to get arrested if I carry on tonight. If it gets back what I talk about. Uh, lovely to be here tonight. Uh, great to see so many people here. And I understand those tickets go on sale on the 7th of January. Is that correct? Just, uh, just no, got word. It's on the 7th. Oh, it's on the 7th of March. It's the show. Right. Tickets may be Okay, okay, the, it's on the 7th of March, the show, right. Okay, we've got that sorted out. Uh, sorry I'm a bit overdressed, but I've been to the BRDC luncheon today, the awards, so hence I'm dressed up a little bit too much. And the funniest thing that happened there all evening was that, uh, or all afternoon, was Lewis Hamilton didn't turn up, which they were all a bit pissed off about. Um, <laughs> and, and what made it quite funny was the fact that he was at a fashion show in New York, apparently. <laughs> And Jake Humphrey said, let's hope he comes back with a bit of dress sense. So, anyway. <laughs> Which I thought was quite amusing. Um, anyway, uh, great to be here tonight, as I said. Um, and some of you might have been here too. I can't believe I'm back for the second time. Normally it's just to apologise, but apparently <laughs> um, it was two years ago I was here. Um, and it was a great pleasure to see quite a few people. I hope not too, too, not too many people are, are the same. You might get fed up with listening to me. But ironically, I was back here uh, one year ago for the Police Motorsport Club, which was a bit embarrassing because half my stories to do with getting in trouble with the police. But <laughs> what made it even funnier, and I hope they're not here tonight, someone passed out halfway through the evening. Um, a, a lady passed out halfway through the evening. The husband went over to try and attend to her, and then he passed out. And they were all out on the balcony here while I'm trying to sort of hang on there while, while they got it all sorted out. Anyway, um, I am very proud to say that I am now 42 years without having a proper job, which is my most my biggest claim to fame, I guess you could say. Um, I am now 62 years old. I would have been older, but my mum was shy. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I've had a wonderful life. I've, had a, I've uh, had a dream kind of life career with very little talent, which is extraordinary, really. Um, just a bit about me to sort of start the evening off. I was born in Hertfordshire to a farmer, or a small holding farmer. Uh, I got expelled from my primary school at the age of 10, so I haven't even got an 11 plus, I think. This is <laughs> what I was hoping to get something, um, which was a little embarrassing, because I had to send my kids to that same very school where I was the only pupil to ever have been expelled from the Stephen Warden Primary School. But anyway, I moved on. I went to senior school in Cambridge, whereupon I was expelled at the age of 15. Um, so it's, education hasn't really been my thing. Uh, and it was ridiculous, because I was showing my, my engineering background, really, because Mr Carruthers, our geography teacher, I took his wheel nuts off his Triumph Herald and put his hubcaps back on. <laughs> And it was very, very funny when he went to drive off. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, they, I got grassed up and was sent, uh, sent away, actually. Uh, which really kind of <laughs> introduced me, I guess, to motor racing. Uh, as I say, born in Hertfordshire, uh, countryside, riding motorbikes, driving cars around the fields. Whatever had an engine, uh, I would be in it or on it or something like that. And then started riding on the roads, uh, crashed, ended up in ditches and all that sort of thing, and started club racing. And it's, it's really weird now, watching how things are at the moment, where you have to go through these set things, let it be the Red Bull Rookies Series, or you have to do the, come up through, through the ranks of all these classes. I didn't. I just got myself an old motorbike, and I went off to Snetterton. No, Brands Hatch, actually, my first ever race, with my Triton that I built myself. By now, having been expelled at, from school at 15, I was doing my agricultural apprenticeship uh, in Royston, which, incidentally, is my last job, actually, so that's, say, 42 years ago. Um, and I went off to Brands Hatch, and I don't know if any of you have raced at Brands Hatch or anything, but you'll know it's very slippery, and the main reason it's slippery is because my Triton leaked so much bloody oil <laughs> around Brands Hatch, it still hasn't recovered from it, I don't think. So I, I kind of proved to myself that probably engineering wasn't my main forte, because the bike fell apart and everything else. Uh, and I bought myself a better bike, and I started um, winning a few club races. And um, it, it sort of goes on from there, really. I mean, if, uh, it was Barry Sheen that said, if I fell in the cesspit, I'd come out with a salmon on my head. And he's, <laughs> and he's really not far wrong, because I, I, I got sponsored by a lovely gentleman called Harold Coppock in the early 70s, a chicken farm from Oxfordshire. And then I got sponsored by a very, very nice gentleman from Guildford called Dave Moore, who had a small building company. Uh, and sadly, he's not here tonight. He was coming along tonight, um, and it's a shame he's had a a small operation and he's not able to make it but I'm hoping to catch up with him again soon and I don't want to let too much on about his operation but um, just to say one or two gentlemen in the room will know what it's like when you get to our age you go for a bit of a prostate check and I went myself just recently and the doctors Indian doctor said you know this isn't very pleasant you know what it's going to entail and he said um, I've got to warn you Mr Paris that some people will get an erection when this happens and I said well I can assure you I'm not going to he said well I am <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm diversifying. Uh, where was it? Anyway, I was sponsored by Dave Moore and um, I ended up winning the British Championship. Uh, and then I went on to ride for Suzuki's in the Grand Prix team. And generally have spent the last, I guess you'd say, yeah, 40 odd years just pissing around. Um, I worked out quite early on that if you raced motorbikes and were winning races and you wore a helmet a lot, you'd get prettier girls. And I think that was the main reason I went racing, actually. But, um, it sort of worked. Anyway, um, and, and I just have gone from one thing to another. I, my best ever year was my first ever Grand Prix season. I finished seventh in the World Championship. Fifth, actually. Fifth in the World Championship. As I said, won the British Motorcycle Championship, won the 500cc Shell Sport Championship. So, Kind of average, I guess you'd say. I, was, I did okay, but nobody had more fun. Trust me. I sort of bounced from one thing to another. And I, I'm going to sort of start the evening off with one of the things that um, I got into. Um, I was skinned, basically. After I'd um, raced motorcycles at, at an amateur level and for Harold Copper and Blessing Dave used to supply me the bikes, but never really earned any money out of it. And I signed for Suzuki's in 1977, but again, not getting paid a great deal of money. Uh, I think my signing on fee was £5,000, which you'd arguably say was a reasonable amount of money, but it was in instalments. But in the winter of 1976-77, stroke 77, 
I was introduced, or I'd met this gentleman down the bottom there, Piers Weld Forrester, sat next to Barry Sheen. And Piers Weld Forrester was um, a trust affairian, I guess you'd call him. He was a very wealthy gentleman, or he came from a very wealthy family, but he didn't have any cash, he was skinny. But he lived in this massive house, house in Waterford Road in Chelsea, by the football ground there, but never had any money whatsoever, and sort of bounced around and had an old Ford Transit to drive around him, but had lots of contacts in, uh, in London. I used to go and stay down at his house in Chelsea, along with Barry Sheen and a few other racers, Gary Nixon. We'd all basically base ourselves in Waterford Road at, at Piers' house. Um, and Piers came to me in, I guess it would have been about December 76, and he said, um, I just explained my nickname Stavros in the racing world, uh, and I better explain why that is, because when I was a kid, I was a porky little thing, fat little bastard basically, and I had curly hair, so Barry Sheen made me Koja, uh, Stavros after Kojak, the, movie, the TV program Kojak. So anyway, there we are down there, and Piers said, um, Stavros, do you fancy a free holiday? I said, yeah, dead right, I fancy a free holiday. So he said, well, all you've got to do is I'm going to tell Prince Michael of Kent, as you can see over there on the right, that you're a really, really top-class bobslayer. <laughs> I said, go ahead, it's a free holiday. He said, well, it's two weeks in Eagles in Austria, and we're going to go down there. Uh, and he said, you're going to be the driver of a two-man bob, and I'm going to be the brake. And I said, yeah, fine. What, one, what does one look like? He said, well, you'll find out when you get down there. And it was literally like... So we go all the way down to Eagles in Austria um, for... This is what made me laugh. When we get down there, I am in the training camp for the 1978 Winter Olympics. <laughs> as a two-band bob driver, and I've never seen one. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and I'm sure some of you have watched it on TV more recently. And, and in back then, the British team were probably quite high up. We, were, we won the gold in 66, I think, with Nash and Dixon. And it was all going good. And it was, the, the series was very strong, and the British team were very strong. It was Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and these two friggin' idiots, Parrish <laughs> and Forrester. So the two-man bob has big handles at the top, uh, whereupon you run like hell, you go over the edge, and away you go down there. And I am there the first night, never seen this thing before, but Prince Michael thinks I'm an ace at it, so I'm sort of making out I know exactly what I'm doing. And it's something like 22 corners from top to bottom at Eagles in Austria on this man-made course where everyone practices, and the, the Polish team would be there, and the Spanish team, and the American team, and the British team, and these two so the first night, I'm there waiting to push off, and um, Prince Michael, who was the team man, captain and manager, and everything else, comes wandering up. He says, um, Parrish and Forrest, are you ready to go? I said, I'm very sorry, sir. My brake man doesn't seem to be here at the moment. So we were moved along a little bit, and the Marines went off, and the Air Force went uh, Parrish and Forrest, this should have started at 7.30, but about 10 to 8. Uh, Parrish and Forrest, were your last to go, but you're ready to go. At that point, and I'm rocking this back and forth, so to the eye. At that point, Mr. Piers Well Forrester comes staggering up, <laughs> pissed out his head. And you can't blame him, he's about to get into the back of a two-man ball <laughs> at 80 miles an hour with a bloke that has never seen one until that particular day. So gingerly we set off and we are through the briefing before we went, the whole deal as you don't want to ruin the ice, a two-man bob, these handles are not only for pushing off, they also weight it so that if you inadvertently turn upside down, the 
the brake man and the driver can climb out the back. And it literally is. The brake man slides out the back, takes the driver knee by the scruff of the neck, you slide out the back of it, and at that point, the bob, when it gets to the next corner, it waves so that it flips itself back on its wheel if you turn it upside down. So it doesn't wreck the ice, because otherwise we're Polish, we're Spanish, and the Americans are really brilliant in song. Not to mention the British team. Anyway, <laughs> that very first night we made it to turn three, and then we were upside down. But unfortunately, because Piers was drunk and wouldn't get out, we were upside down at turn four, five. <laughs> <laughs> that night we got the record of going over the finishing line, the fastest anyone's ever done, at two people in the bog at 72 miles an hour. Giggling at that point. <laughs> so the next night we get a massive bollocking from the bike of Ken. He ruined the ice, this, that, and the other, and what happened, and I came up with some excuse that Piers' leathers had got tangled up, and he couldn't get out. But anyway, rather than bore you, this happened on three occasions. We never got past turn six, and we never ever came out of it because it was going to hurt. <laughs> so on each occasion, um, my bobsleigh career was pretty much upside down the whole period. I, I never saw the proper track apart from being inverted, kind of <laughs> giggling, um, basically. Uh, anyway, we got expelled, so not only my primary school was seen, but I've now been expelled from the British, British Bobsleigh uh, Association, which was fine, kind of, because we went off and went skiing, so it was all paid for, so I got my free horses. Anyway, 77, I signed for Suzuki's uh, factory team, alongside Barry Sheen, my kind of hero from early years, and there I am, sat next to him on the grid, with the same helmet and letters, all sponsored. There was actually three of us in the team, Barry Sheen, Pat Hedden, and myself. Went off and did the Grand Prix, and I had a pretty good year that year, but anyway, in June in 77, I'm at the TT. Barry wouldn't do the TT, but Pat Hedden and I are there. And I'm sat on the grid at the TT. Um, we watched it. I don't know if any of you have competed in it, but you can see it's kind of, it is very dangerous. It is very scary. It's probably the, the greatest race you could ever do on a motorcycle. Um, it's certainly the, the most dangerous you can ever do. So consequently, you're very nervous. There I am, 77, number six on my bike, starting in number six. And I think it was something like Nick Grant, John Williams, John Newbold, whatever, starting in front of me. And there I said, very, very nervous with a 10-minute board up before you have to set off down Glen Crutchery Road to do your six laps in the senior. And I'm there with my girlfriend, I'm on mechanic. I just have the gloves back and I see this three people dressed not dissimilar to me in suits and ties and everything else, which happened to be the governor, Ver the governor of the Isle of Man, Vernon Cooper, the head of the Autocycle Union, and the honorary president of the Autocycle Union, who happened to be Prince Michael of Kent, <laughs> <laughs> who wanders down there, you can see him looking at all the riders, and I'm thinking, shit, I shouldn't be here. And anyway, he gets to me and looks into my eyes and says, Carriage, I do hope you're better at this than Bob <laughs> I clearly am, because um, I'm here to, here to tell the story right now. But that was kind of how it was. It was... Um, I, I feel I'm from an era where PC stood for pulling crumpet, not all this <laughs> correctness bollocks. And, and, and my education probably started about 1975 or 6 when I started racing motorcycles and travelling around the world and everything else. And, and in 77, my first year in Grand Prix, as I just said, was my first time on an aeroplane. I think I went off to the Venezuelan Grand Prix or something like that. So, sorry, that mean? Um, and and it, it really was. I was like a sponge, just absorbing everything. I was travelling the world being paid to do it, teammates to Barry Sheen, 
Uh, and, you know, it was, it was just like Alice in Wonderland and the girls weren't all called Alice. It was ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, um, 77 again, a lot happened in 1977, and in particular, one of the tracks we went to, and this is later, this is after the TT, uh, we all used to go up and race in Imatra in Finland, which was probably as dangerous and as scary and deadly as the TT. It was lined by trees, Imatra, it's a, a small town right up by the Russian border in Finland. Um, and it's got a railway line and everything else, and ridiculously dangerous. The paddock was in, uh, just by a lake in a running track, where they had a running track, the, the town running track and sports centre was there, where it would be absolutely crammed full, because back then there would have been 125s, 250s, 350s, 500cc, sidecar classes, all with probably 40, 45 people qualified to try and qualify. So, you know, we're talking of 250, 300 riders there in this small paddock area, which had one tiny toilet block in it which was ridiculous, because everyone was about to shit themselves before they went out on the track, <laughs> it was so dangerous. But the, one of the nice parts about Imatra was that they had this lovely lake beside the, beside the paddock area, which was one of those conservation lakes where you had to wear a hat if you wanted to go swimming, you couldn't start an outboard motor up or anything like that. So we would go out swimming and put your hats on and stuff like that, lovely weather up there. And we would spend a lot of time downtown, because there's lots of pretty Finnish girls and everything else on, and stuff like that. Anyway, the track was, as I said, very, very dangerous. Race took place, and it all went reasonably smoothly. Uh, Barry, Barry Sheen clinched the World Championship at that event in 77 to take his second World Championship. He finished fifth, uh, and I finished fourth, but he got the World Championship, and that was all done and dusted. So that night was going to be a big party for everyone. Everyone's wrapping all their tents up. No garages then. It would be an awning beside your transit or beside your caravan. And, and I can distinctly remember that night, 5 o'clock, Everyone packing up to go off to town and have a really good night. At that point, Barry comes over to me, uh, into my car, and he said, Staros, uh, he, said, he said, I've been coming here now five years. He said, the toilet block's disgusting and it shouldn't be allowed and it doesn't cope. He said, um, we're going to burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> if your hero and teammate Barry Sheen says he's going to burn the toilet block down, he's going to burn the toilet block down. So he said, bring your 20 litres of abgash you've got left over. <laughs> And uh, he said, we'll just set fire to it, and then next year we'll come back and have a nice new toilet block. <laughs> so off I go with my 20 litres of our gas, and at that point, I didn't realise I was actually doing it. Barry says, right, I'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> and you go and tip the Avgas high-octane field down the toilet. Make sure there's no one in there first. And then he said, um, I'll get my lighter, and he's got his guitar on or something like that, and we'll just set fire to it. Well, it was at that point, as I spent, uh, tipped the gas out from there and left a trail coming out, it was like, it's like one of those movies, you know, when you're leaving a trail of fuel and things. And it was at that point I realised that I shouldn't have got expelled from at least one of my schools, because I would have known a bit more about methane gas, I think. <laughs> anyway, the blue touch paper was lit as such, and you have never seen anything quite like it. It was like a movie, it's like one of those carry-on movies, because this thing went... <laughs> And off it went, and there was such an enormous explosion where it completely blew the shithouse roof off. <laughs> Obviously, in Finland, everything was made of wood, and this whole wooden roof flew through the air, sort of over the paddock, in flames, 
and landed in the conservation lake. <laughs> where everyone was having to wear hats to swim in. And I can just remember the, the security guards and the authorities kind of looking up. And as sizzle as this shit house we've landed. Which we all were quite proud, Barry and I were quite proud about it, thought we'd done a good job there. It's for the community of motorcycle racing, they're all going to have a new toilet block. But we actually got into a fair bit of trouble because what we hadn't realised was as the roof went through the air, it had laid poo all over the paddock. <laughs> and everyone was trying to wrap the tents up. And in particular, Corky Ballington and John Eckerall were not at all impressed because they had literally got to the stage, you know when you're just folding that end in? <laughs> anyway, it was absolutely foul and disgusting. But anyway, a part of my education and I learned from that. But I must say in 78 there was a brand new toilet block, so it actually did, did the job. But it was a, a wonderful period of, of learning and, and stuff like that. Anyway, helicopters. Um, I love this story because it makes me giggle to this day. Sadly, we haven't got Mr. Sheen with us anymore. He passed away 12 years ago uh, with esophagus cancer. And uh, you know, it was a sad time of my life, but I still have a chance to reminisce a little bit. And I'll reminisce with you also. In, the, in 1980, Barry had switched from Suzuki's to Yamaha. And he decided to learn to fly a helicopter. I think probably because Yamaha paid so much bloody money, possibly. But. So he, he bought that helicopter. Um, <coughs> Um, he bought that helicopter, Golf Bravo, Golf Mike X-Ray, an Enstrom helicopter. It would be the equivalent to a Robinson 22, I guess, these days. Lots of belts and whirring things and everything else like that. And he learned to fly down at Shoreham near Brighton, not far from where he was living at the time. He'd moved from Wisbeach to Putney and then down to Charlwood, which is just probably to the northwest of, of Gatwick Airport. Anyway. He bought that helicopter and learned to fly. Did it very quickly, did it in about 45, 50 hours. I used to fly with him a lot and I kind of learned how to fly on the back of him. I never, I never actually got my license, but I photocopied his. Which was, <laughs> <laughs> it was easy enough to do. Um, I think my pilot's license still photocopied, isn't it? Anyway. So, we used to fly quite a bit and mainly, this is pre-GPS days of course, and so it would be, and I'm, I'm sure some of you people out there have flown planes, it, it, over the years without GPS, and it literally was, you know, this flipping map that had railway lines on it, it would have towns, and you'd have a, a whirly gig wheel and a stopwatch, and in theory, you know, you knew you were over Red Hill, and then six minutes later you should have been over somewhere else. Anyway, we used to get lost all the time, as you can imagine, two pilots in a helicopter. <laughs> By now he's passed his licence, and our usual trip would be to go from his house at Charlwood down to Shoreham, to go and have a cup of tea, because... The main reason we went that way is because you couldn't get lost, you followed the railway line, and that's literally what we were doing. Finally, we keep following the railway line all the way down there, and barely dare to go away from the railway line. Um, and we'd been down there for the day and everything else. But one of the issues with going down to Shoreham for a cup of tea was that you had to go through Gatwick's air, air traffic control. But Barry being Barry, knew all the air traffic controllers, he would go and see them and have a chat to them and buy them a coffee and just talk shit with them and everything else. And of course they loved it, signing posters and hats and everything else. And they all loved Barry Sheen, as everyone did back in the 80s. So one particular occasion, we'd been down to Shaw, we'd had a cup of tea, he'd had some maintenance done on the helicopter and we were heading back. Well, just before we headed back, we'd always have a quick look over the nudist beach at, Gap, at uh, Brighton, just to see the <laughs> young ladies naked over the beach, as you would do. And then we're following the railway line back. And the normal procedure should be, and I, was, I think I was better on the radio than Barry, because Barry just didn't quite grasp what he had to do, because everyone knew who he was. 
But when you're flying back towards Gatwick, it should be something on the lines of, uh, this is Enstrom Helicopter Golf Bravo Golf Mike X-Ray, we're at 1,000 feet, uh, five miles to the south of you, VFR, uh, requesting transit to your zone. That would be the normal kind of approach to going to Gatwick. But Barry would be, um, afternoon, it's Barry here, all right, if I come through? <laughs> sister Maggie will back me up and it literally was like that because they knew who he was but the problem was that that was on the Gatwick frequency and there was British Caledonian flights and British Airways flights you know they, you could hear them on the radio and there'd be uh, this is VA 72 we're on the ILS at five, uh, 3,000 feet four miles out tracking in for runway 25 and all this is going on they'd be barrack alright if I come through <laughs> So generally, air traffic controllers would be polite, but they'd also, you know, just make sure that things were done accordingly for the other aircraft in, in the zone. So on this particular occasion, uh, we are coming up there, and five, five miles out, and Barry usually, you know, uh, Barry, you're right, if I come to the At that point, uh, the air traffic controller said, uh, Golf Mike X-Ray, could you hold to the south of the zone, do a right-hand orbit, we'll be clearing you as soon as the British Caledonian flight has landed on runway 25. So we did a right-hand orbit. And I can hear British Caledonia flight, you know, 1,000 foot, uh, about to land, uh, final for runway 25, he lands. At that point, the lovely air traffic controller said, uh, Golf, uh, Golf Mike X-ray, clear to transit through Gatwick Air Zone, 1,000 feet VFR, directly above runway 0625, which is the best way, because you're right at the top, most planes are coming in and going out. So that's exactly what we did. We're getting, we're a mile, half a mile, and looking down at 1,000 foot, there's the runway right underneath us. At that very point, there is this enormous rattle coming out of this Enstrom helicopter, whereupon I thought the belts had fell off, the tail rope had collapsed, something. There was a fair amount of panic, I can tell you, in the cabin of this helicopter. Where it should be, gold mine x-ray, uh, mayday, mayday, we need to land, but no, it was, fucking hell, we got landed. <laughs> Bless their hearts, the air traffic controller, I heard them say to uh, British Caledonian, abort landing, climb 5,000 feet. <laughs> British Airways, move from zone B, climb. And, and, and there's planes and jets going everywhere as they cleared us to land immediately. It was, you know, land anywhere you like, land on the runway, land on the grass, whatever you want to do. Which we did as we're landing. All this noise is going on and we're panicking. So we landed right beside the main runway on the grass in this helicopter. And as I say, it's still on the radio, I can hear all these planes circling around, like using up gallons and thousands of gallons of fuel and 747s and everything else all flying around everywhere because these two idiots have got this problem with the helicopter. Anyway, as soon as we landed, we both jumped out, and as I jumped out, it was the point I realised what the problem was. I'd left my seatbelt hanging out the seat. <laughs> <laughs> and it hung out the door, and it was rattling over the side of the helicopter. At that very point, uh, I told Barry what the problem was. You can imagine there was a fair amount of cussing going on. You freaking idiot, Stavros, and this and that. At that very point, the fast re response vehicles are nah, 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 and there's fire engines and ambulances and everything hurtling down the runway at Gatwick Main Airport as all the holiday makers couldn't land because I'd left my seatbelt hanging out the seat. <laughs> so that caused a bit of an issue, but in fairness to Gatwick, we were never fined, we were never really told off, because when, when they, by the time the trucks had all arrived, the fire engine had arrived, 
I've got a coin out of my pocket, I've taken one of the panels off the side, and I said, oh, I found it, so it was just the engine calendar come off, and it was the main time. And I suspect tonight you're going to say, I was the air traffic controller. <laughs> I'm sorry if you were. But anyway, we, off we went back to his house, parked up and sort of giggled about it and everything else and stuff like that. So another little story. Um, they can go on forever and ever, and, and I won't bore you tonight. I do do a, a theatre show which goes on for about two hours, but there's loads of helicopter stories that we have got into so much trouble with the things. It's extraordinary that we haven't had our licences taken I've still got a licence, but Barry uh, didn't have his licence taken off of what went on. I've always had a passion, very much like Brooklyn's. I love the vehicles, the old vehicles that are around here. I love aeroplanes, I have a, my own plane and everything else, but I've always had a passion for vehicles. So, some years ago, um, I bought my own fire engine, <laughs> as you do. If the, I, actually, I need another one. You haven't got one for sale, have you? But I do need another one. But I, I have had over the years a collection of uh, fire engine, hearse, ambulance, armoured car and everything else. But one, I always giggle about this one. I, I'm sure one or two of you, of you people here will have followed Le Mans 24-hour racing and everything else like that. A good friend of mine who's pretty much retired from motor racing now called Hugh Chamberlain. And Hugh Chamberlain has always had successful Le Mans teams over the years. And he lives probably 15 miles from my house or my hometown of Royston. And when, fi uh, when Hugh Chamberlain, and I'm going to say 12 years ago, was 50 years old, he threw a big party in his, in his garden. He's got a lovely big thatched cottage in, I think it's Great Chisel or something like that, where he had a marquee put up and he invited lots of his friends to his 50th birthday party. It was black tie, evening gown type thing with a lovely band there and canapes and champagne and everything else like that. But he foolishly didn't invite me. <laughs> <laughs> or a good friend of mine called John Brown who we, we bought the fire engine between us. And, and one of his mechanics on the night that was there, we'd arranged for Derek, we'd had to bung in 50 quid and let off a smoke bomb at 8.15. <laughs> So at 8.15, Derek lets off a smoke bomb around the back of the marquee, and at 8.22, nee, 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 the fire engine turns off. I don't think they could quite believe that the fire engine had got there so quickly, and they also couldn't really find out the source of this smoke. But you can imagine there was a fair amount of panic that went on. But there was even more panic when we swung around the corner with my fire engine and fired the pumps up and started spraying everyone. And, and it, I don't know if you will find it, but you sort of had to be there on the night. But what was very funny was there was this sort of, all the blokes were going to the women and ladies all in their long frocks, get to the house, get to the house. And one by one, we were taking them out. <laughs> and it's hard to explain, but if you just you hit them sort of halfway down the car, lengthen the up in the air. It's all on grass now, which is wet grass. And it was just like a like one of them fairground things when you're knocking ducks over. <laughs> anyway, we took out about 18 ladies before Hugh Chamberlain, in fairness, who'd had a few drinks, runs over and turns the key off and stopped our fun. Um, and we were told to get out of there quite quickly, I have to say. I'm surprised he didn't call the police, but anyway, he should have invited me, shouldn't he? <laughs> but the fire engine, we had an awful lot of fun with it. Um, Another occasion it got used was when we couldn't get to see Genesis that were playing at Nedwood on the A1 there. We were a bit late buying our tickets, so we had to dig the fire engine out again, and off we went down to Nedwood and pulled up quite late in the evening. Everyone was in there, and we obviously didn't have any tickets, but we didn't even have to say anything. We just swung in there with the fire engine, all dressed up in there. We didn't have the proper hats. There's some toys are up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there's the belt. 
anyway. So we pull up and straight away the security people moved all the cones and the bollards and everything else. And just as we drove through, they went next to the St John's ambulance by the stage. So that's exactly what we did. We drove down parked up beside the stage there with our fireman's gear on and everything else, just as the concert was kicking off and everyone was singing and dancing. And so we get our buckets and champagne out and beers and start drinking away and we had a lovely day there. And I, I, I sometimes feel a little guilty and it's a bit like the Simon Mayo confession thing. I should ring him up because we shouldn't have done it but we put a bucket out and we actually came away with a profit because people were chucking <laughs> really bad, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> so it was a cracking night and we came away with a bit of a profit. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. And I know, I do apologise right now, I know it's ridiculous and I should grow up, but I refuse to. You can, you can only be young once, but you can be immature all your life. And in fact, my girlfriend Michelle, just this week, she said, Steve, we need to sit down for a day and talk about your immaturity. And I said, that's fine, but not while a conquer season's on. <laughs> But it, um, another, I had, a, 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 again, trying to find things to do, because I knew my motorcycle and career couldn't carry on forever, because I wasn't that good, so I was looking for different things to do. And I became the importer for two items, actually. Uh, one was that, and the other was that, uh, my remote control car machine. <laughs> anyway, I used to bring these in from America, and, and the ultimate revenge kit, which is kind of old hat now, but back in the day, and this was ooh, probably early 90s I guess, you could buy these kits and they had headed, really smart headed paper. Before computers were out, we only had to type stuff out and everything else. And you could get lots of, there'd probably be 60 different letters in there, probably from the police, from the ambulance department, <coughs> from the RAF, you name it, from schools and things like that. And they used to get these letters. And one that really tickles me, in my little village of Stephen Moore, was there was one in there from the uh, from the RAF uh, and uh, the aviation or CAA RAF that um, just it was like a standard letter you just put people's address and name on it and it would be I, I took these around the whole village it was about a world record to break the sound barrier over the top of Stephen Ward and would everybody tape their windows up <laughs> and I'm not kidding you I'm serious whole friggin village every house you went past <laughs> I mean, it sounds ridiculous. There was another one where it was from the Educational Authority and a very good friend of mine called Barry Borner who had three kids in, uh, in um, private school, in boarding school, actually. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in Barry St Edmunds or somewhere like that. Nearly three kids in it. And we wrote to Barry Borner from the, uh, the school headmaster saying, Dear Mr Borner, we're coming up towards half term. Uh, your son, Josh, is coming back. It's only Josh we're having a problem with. Um, and we can't seem to stop him masturbating. <laughs> Would you mind sending him to bed wearing oven gloves? When <laughs> <laughs> um, can you imagine your father sitting you down? Poor old Josh didn't know what the hell was going on. And another, another one, and I say, I still can't stop laughing about myself. When I was racing trucks, this would be mid-90s, I had a mechanic called Alan Clark who we were always mucking around with one another and he'd do things to me and whenever I used to get to the track he'd have my flipping overalls with, full of straw or something like that. So I, I guess I started off in a fairly big way because he liked his cycling, Alan did, and every morning we'd get up at 6.30 whether we were in the Nürburgring in Germany or in Harama in Spain or Brands Hatch, he'd get up at 6.30 and go cycling, he liked to keep himself fit. 
So one particular evening, he'd gone down the pub or something like that. And uh, I know you shouldn't do it, and I know it's childish, but we did fix it. Anyway, you know the old bicycles used to have a, like a chrome clip over the cables and everything else? I hacksawed through all the tubes on every part of his, moment, of his bicycle <laughs> and put the, slid the clips back up it. And we all got up, the whole team, about eight of us, got there early in the morning just to sort of peer through the hedge and watch Alan and his first pedal, the whole thing just fell <laughs> and completely collapsed. Luckily, he didn't hurt himself. And in fairness to him, he got me back because I went to play in a charity golf match and the first club I went to here, the flipping thing fell in half and he'd rolled all the rubber up and hacksawed all my golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> but I got him back even better with one of these letters. Again, it was from the, the, uh, the CID police authorities. He lived in Bridlington from the Yorkshire police to say that um, they would like, because uh, we knew where he lived, um, they had some problems and issues and they had a drug dealer living opposite to him and they were going to offer him £200 a week to use his front room for surveillance. Would he mind moving his furniture out and everything, his bed and everything else? And he, we knew exactly where his bed was. We knew everything. And bless his heart, poor old Alan shifted. He even took the wardrobes apart to move them out of his front room for the police to come and use it for surveillance. And for two weeks, he was waiting for them to knock on the door. <laughs> it just used to make me laugh. So anyway, yeah, the, apart from that, there's car machines, which I've... Um, still keep a fart machine or two and they're always good fun. Um, some crappy, they're really good if you're ever going to the doctors, put them under the magazine rack because you've got a razor which is the end of the room so you can sit right at the far end and hit the button and just watch everyone look at everyone else going <laughs> and I'm going to embarrass Michelle here, I've never told this story before not uh, in front of lots of people but I also work as an expert witness for motor racing accidents and we'd flown back to Lancashire, wasn't it? What's Lancashire? Lancaster Court. We've flown back to Lancaster Court and I'm there in, as a witness for a motor racing accident that took place. And we'd, we'd flown over in my plane, so Michelle was with me and she decides to come along and bring her magazines and sat up in the sort of area where the spectators would normally sit. But this was only uh, a small, smallish case. So what you've got down the front, you've got four or five solicitors, counsel, uh, the clerk and the judge. So there was, I'm guessing, 10 people with me in the witness box, as Michelle was the only person sat up in where the spectating area is, where it probably would have held 200 people, but she sat up there with a book, reading a book, and I've, she didn't know, I've put the fart machine in her handbag. <laughs> but I've got the remote in my pocket. And I knew that I wouldn't get busted because I was stood in the witness book and I'd swear to <laughs> tell the truth, the whole truth and the whole truth, but I couldn't help but just hit the button and there was this enormous sort of <laughs> And everyone down the bottom just turned around. <laughs> she was the only one there. And foolishly, Michelle, if you'd have sat there, you could have probably got away with it, but you got up and ran out. It's like you wanted to go to the <laughs> They're all going, poor girl, obviously. You know, needs the toilet. Anyway, but it's, yeah, it's just about having fun, really, isn't it? I'm going to play a little clip now, because uh, I'm sure we're going to have a little question and answer at the end of this, and I know what you're going to ask, ask me. It's about Valentina Rossi and Mark Marquez. And, and you'd be thinking that they don't always have a great deal of fun. Well, it's not strictly true, because some of the riders, it's harder for them to have fun, because nowadays everyone's got a camera, there's Twitter and there's Facebook and everything else, so you get busted for whatever you do. <coughs> But uh, Jorge Lorenzo, who is now the current world champion, um, who you would think is 
has no sense of humour whatsoever. Well, that's not strictly true because when Horgo, he won, when he won his 250 World Championship, and after he'd won his first 500 or MotoGP Championship, he came to the motorcycle show, the NEC show, which actually just finished last night. I've been there eight days, just got finished last night. And Jorge was sent over by Yamaha, and um, at the time I think he was wearing X-Lite helmets, and they sent him over there. And he was a bit shy, because this is going back seven or eight years ago. He was a little bit shy and everything else, and sent over. And he was sent over to the backstage area where I was working. We have a big stage at the show where we do interviews and everything else, and the big guest is coming over, Jorge Lorenzo. So they met him off the plane, and they ushered him into the show. And they gave him two um, MCN girls to look after him, you know, dressed in their lycras and whatever, all looking very pretty. And they were ushering him around, brought him over to the green room, sat him down, where I managed to get a fart machine underneath where he was sat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can see he was a little black fish out of water, not sure what was going on. So I hit the old, I'm out outside the room, hit the remote, and we're having a little peer over the top, and there's him doing this, and the girls are all looking at him, and he's going, <laughs> Anyway. Halfway through the day, he works out that I've set him up with a fart machine. And he didn't really say a great deal about it, but the day went on and he was taken to see Yamahas and he was taken to his uh, helmet people and his leathers people and be basically being very busy. He came back and did a question and answer thing with me. I did a thing called question of sport and he did all that. He was polite. Anyway, he had a flight and he had to leave at 5 o'clock that evening. At about 4.30, he comes running back up. He goes, oh, Steve, um, your book on Barry Sheen, you've written a book on Barry Sheen. I said, yes, sir. He said, I need a copy. I want you to sign the copy for me. So I ran to my office to get this book. I'm thinking, the world champion, Jorge Lorenzo, wants me to sign a book. So I'm running back over to him. I've got a pen and a book. And he goes, no, I have a pen. Gives me a pen. The bastard only gave me an electrocuting pen. Properly <laughs> <laughs> set me up. Didn't even want my bloody autograph. <laughs> but... Um, Jorge Lorenzo, we caught up with him in Valencia uh, a couple of years ago. Anyway, bless his heart, he said they're not the same farts that he has. So, so they, do have a, they do have a sense of humour. I know it's quite tricky for them because it's nowadays, as I said, back in my day, it would be racing, I don't know, Saturday, Sunday, and then mucking around for five days in a week. These poor lads have to go to the gym on Monday, the psychiatrist Tuesday, the dietitian Wednesday, the press guy Thursday. It's a full-on job. So they don't get anything like as much time and fun as we used to do. Now... Um, some of you will not realise that I am, uh, I've been a doctor over the years. Um, I'm, I'm not a proper trained doctor, but I do have a, as you can see, I have a title on my business card and letter heads, uh, N-L-A-M-N is my title, which stands for no letters after my name. Because <laughs> basically I'm never going to get any, so I've given myself some. And uh, I have a PhD because I did some Pizza Hut delivery. <laughs> That all sort of fits in. And, and, and ironically, when I was, particularly when I was racing trucks on Mercedes-Benz, all my bank drafts and checks and everything that came through used to have LA men on them and PhD. They genuinely thought that I'd got some sort of title. 
probably worth five in the end. But the, the reason the sort of doctrine, the reason my business cards with it on came in handy was in 2006 we had been racing out in Matagi, the Japanese Grand Prix, uh, which is a two hour drive from Tokyo. And on Sunday nights it's usually a big rush back to Tokyo to try and get a few drinks, get some sleep and catch the first flight back to London out which goes on a Monday morning. BA 72 leaves at midday on Monday mornings, every Monday morning or every day of the week actually. But most of the teams are keen to get back to Europe. Um, and, and even if you're trying to get to Spain or to Italy, the quickest way generally is via London. So you go Narita, Tokyo, London, and then they'd go down to Madrid or down to Milan or something like that. So the 747 that leaves, the, the main plane that goes back, leaves at 12 o'clock, and it's full of mechanics, riders, press guys, cameramen, journalists, you name it. This plane's pretty much crammed full. So we went out for a drink in 2006, and caught up with a few of the guys, went and did a bit of karaoke, got a bit drunk, went to the lounge in the morning at about 10 o'clock in the morning, had some coffees, tried to sober up and things like that. John Hopkins is on our flight, as with lots of other people. And I think it was probably about quarter past 11 for a 12 o'clock departure, we're boarded through the lounge into our cabin area where we're all getting settled. And I was with Belinda Rogerson, who was my producer for BBC, Charlie Cox, Susie Perry, I think Matt Roberts might have been there. Anyway, we're all in a little area. John Hopkins is over there, and uh, Christopher Mule, and oh, what, just the whole lot on there. But poor old Hoppo had got bowled off in the race and had broken his rib and hurt his leg. And um, he had sort of, you know, was a bit beaten up and everything else. So he's getting on the plane, and rather than keep his trap shut, he's trying to chat up one of the air stewardesses, and he's going, oh, do you think you could put, help me put my briefcase in the locker? And she said, yes, Mr. Hopkins, um, have you got a problem? He said, oh, I've got um, three broken ribs on the Grand Prix ride here. He's laying the old flat while trying to talk to this girl. Which is ridiculous because he's like a, he's got a face like a bulldog killing a wasp. <laughs> anyway. And she goes straight to the cabin director and said, Mr. Hopkins has sat in 6B, he's complaining he's got broken ribs. I think it's a BA's policy, and it's transpired that it's everyone's policy not to fly people with broken ribs because of the pressure changes and punch it lungs and everything. So she immediately goes to say to the cabin director who comes over and there's a right kerfuffle going on and Hopkins is going, well, I've got to get back. And I had to get back. I had a meeting on uh, the following the Tuesday evening and I wanted to get back and Charlie wanted to get back. We all wanted to get back. But we can see this turning into a right messy situation where they're going to offload John Hopkins. And if they're, by now it's quarter to 12 and they're pushing back at, you know, in 10 minutes' time. So... They're, they're trying to chuck him off, and if they chuck him off, they've got to take his luggage off, which is all over there. It would have been an hour, maybe an hour and a half, even, to get Hopkins off. So I thought, well, the best thing for, for Dr. Parrish to do, <laughs> which I'm not, I just hopped over. I said, excuse me, I've been listening to the conversation. I said, um, I've examined Mr. Hopkins at the track, actually, yesterday, and uh, he's perfectly okay, okay to fly. Whereupon the cabin director goes, well, I, I, I can't make a decision. We're going to have to call the captain down. So the captain comes down. And he stares and his 747 comes down and what's the situation? And I said, uh, Mr. Hopkins has got uh, broken ribs. They're not badly broken. I'm a doctor. I've examined him. He's perfectly okay to fly. So he said, well, as long as you're willing to sign on the back of the menu, uh, Dr. Parrish, NLAMN, PhD, <laughs> Mr. Hopkins sat in 6B, is all right to fly, then we can go. I said, well, we go and sign it. Belinda Rogers, my producer, is going to get apoplectic with rage. <laughs> screaming that you can't do this, you work for BBC, and I explained to her that I only work for BBC Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I become a doctor on Monday. 
So anyway, I did it and off we go. We push back and away we go. And by this time, they're all going, bloody seven. Well done, fantastic. Apart from Belinda Rogers going. <laughs> anyway, everything's cool. Uh, they're all getting me a glass of champagne and Dr. Paris has done a great job. John Hopkins going, oh, you won there, mate. Just getting out of my bed and getting the duvet thing out of 13-hour flight, I thought oh, I'll get 11 hours back. Where I'm just laying down, and who comes over but the cabin director, uh, Dr. Parrish. I said, "Yes, I'm trying to get some sleep." He said, um, "We've got a problem at the back of the plane." Where I came very close to shitting myself. <laughs> Probably closer than where the helicopter was plummeting towards the ground. Anyway. I said, well, I'm, I'm off duty. Um, he said, no, would you mind, we do have a problem, it's not a major problem, would you mind coming to my office and we can discuss the matter? I'm thinking I've been caught, someone's grasped me up and they found out I'm not really a doctor. So I go to his office. But the point of going to the office, I wasn't sure whether to swing off into the toilet to lock myself in for the remaining 11 hours, or just to get in the office and say, sorry, I'm not really a doctor, and hope we wouldn't turn around and go back. But anyway, as I sat there, I thought, sorry, in for a penny, in for a pound, I'm not I might as well carry on being a doctor. So he said, what the problem is, and I'm thinking, babies, what do you do? Hot towels, <laughs> heart attacks. I'd watched a bit of Holby, so I knew a little bit. <laughs> so I, um, I said, well, what was the problem? I said, I, I really should be off duty. I've been working all night. And so. He said, all it is is at the back of the plane, we've got the drunk, a fellow that's absolutely inebriated. He's causing havoc for the staff, my stewardesses, the other passengers, and we've had enough of him. I need you to go back there and certify that he's drunk because we're going to have him arrested when he gets to Heathrow Airport. He's on a flight that goes Narita, Tokyo, London, London, Madrid. And we're going to get him arrested because he's caused so much trouble and we can't stop him and he's stealing other people's drinks and stuff. For goodness. Oh, well, under the circumstances, I'm more orthopedics, but under the circumstances. <laughs> I'll help you out on this occasion. So I wander off down the back of the plane. Sure enough, there's his like, out of his brains, but how on earth do you check and how do you certify someone's The other passengers are moving out of the way and I'm sat down beside him. He's going, Steve. <laughs> Turns out it's one of Dawn's cameraman that I've been working with about three weeks before. Spanish guy who recognises me. I didn't know who he was, but he's recognised me, so I'm trying to say to the cabin director, he's clearly drunk because I've never met this man before in my life. <laughs> All this shit's going on. Anyway, I got his pulse and looking in his eyes, I had no idea what I was doing. But anyway, I went back and I had no choice. I went back to the cabin director's little office and I said, yes, signed clearly, bloke sat in 36D. Uh, his name was Mr. Just, I don't know, I can't remember what his name was. Anyway, signed him off. Get back to my little bed where Belinda Rogerson is still going off on one. Um, Susie Perry had wet herself, I think, because she thought I was about to go and deliver a baby. <laughs> <laughs> So for the remaining nine hours probably left, I laid on my bed with a pillar over my head, just wrapping myself that someone else was going to get properly ill. But luckily for me, they didn't. But when we landed, I have never been keener to get off an aeroplane in my life. And as we're going off, sure enough, as I come around the corner where the sort of, where the kitchen area is on the 747, there is a policeman there. And I think, Jesus, this could be, he could be for me. But it turns out he's not for me. But uh, you know sometimes the captains come down and they say, you this, that, and the other, they've got that. As I come past, the captain that I've signed, NOA, and he's seen all this, as I go past, he goes, um, love the commentary. The bastard knew all along. (laughs) 
13 hours I sat there shitting myself. <laughs> the captain knew all along that I was only a fake doctor. Really, really annoying. But I think he wanted to get back as well, so he just thought he'd put it onto me. Uh, anyway, I've got to be careful I don't go on too long. I'm back to my dog and the neighbours and they're going to do this. Just a great picture, really. Um, I've often thought bus racing would be a great thing to do. We're all starved of motor racing in the winter. It's all ended, doesn't it? Formula One's ended. Uh, motorcycle racing, it's finished. It's too cold, it's too wet. You don't want to sit in the grandstand when it's freezing cold. I don't want to probably be out there uh, on a motorbike particularly. But So I'm thinking about starting up bus racing. Um, I think it's a great way of having sport where the spectators go with the buses. And then that... <laughs> You'd be in the dry, you'd have a away day ticket, there could be one from Weybridge maybe, and one from Guildford, and you'll end up at Thruxton and tear around all day long and don't get cold. Um, and they've even worked out a handicap system, what you'd do, rather than have this stupid system where the wing shuts and opens and all that bollocks, is you just have, every time the bus is in front, every lap, the leading bus is out in front, two more people have to go upstairs. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get more unbalanced and you're going to have to slow down. I mean, it's a wonderful handicap. And how it came about was on this particular day. This was at Silverstone, it was South Barrachine, guy that owned the Porsche shop, George Harrison and Kenny Lynch. And we were there for the Gunnar Nielsen cancer campaign. It was a fun, poor old Gunnar died of cancer, and, and we, were, we were driving Porsches around Silverstone. I think we did it for, four, for a whole week. It was seven days driving around Silverstone, and we all went along and did a stint. And how this came about, this bus racing variety, was Kenny Lynch and I, way before hospitality, big buses and things had come out, they had an old London bus there, a route master, I think they called them, and if someone had converted it into a hospitality unit where they got kitchens downstairs, upstairs was tables where people could go and have their coffees and lunches and everything else and stuff like that. And Kenny and I decided it'd be really good fun with this bus parked in the paddock just to get in it, start it up and drive off with people having their dinner on. <laughs> And, and some of them enjoyed it. <laughs> and it was all going quite well. We were having a bit of a giggle until we got around the Daily, Spe Daily Express Bridge, realised it wouldn't go through, slammed the brakes on and smashed every bit of cutlery and plates and that they had and smashed the lot. So anyway, that really inspired me to think about bus racing. Um, and I actually got my own bus and we had a little demo with it and stuff like that. But it's never taken off. I've, I've spoken to the RAC, I've spoken to the MSI, I've spoken to everyone. And, Nobody really wants to sanction bus racing. I don't really understand why. Um, because I did have a little practice with it, but with a single-decker bus. Uh, I've been a trustee of, uh, uh, of Riders for Health, a charity for the motorcycle, well, the motorcycle racing community really is involved with riders, and it's a charity that was set up probably 25 years ago now by a lady called Andrea Coleman and Randy Mamola, and it's a way of... It was raising money to supply motorcycles that would get drugs and nurses and doctors to outlying areas in Africa that you couldn't get to with four wheels. And it's since transpired, it's become a, a, a charity that educates people to keep motorcycles and vehicles going and so they get better maintenance and everything else like that. But anyway, at, um, with a way of raising money is motorcycle racing. The day before the British Grand Prix always has a charity day. It's called um, the Day of Champions, where the riders sort of turn up on the Thursday, they give up their day, they sign autographs, they have an auction for their leathers and helmets. and So people come into Silverstone or Donington, depending where the Grand Prix is, Silverstone now, and they pay half, I think it's £15 for the day, and they get to see all the riders and they can buy all this auction stuff and everything else. 
And one other way they raise money on the day is they have a bus there. And it's a single-decker bus uh, that they rent in. And what they do is say, I think it's £10 to be on the bus, 52 people each time. And literally, all day long, this bus goes round the circuit with a famous rider at the front. Uh, obviously, an English-speaking rider. It could be Nicky Hayden, it could be Randy Mamola, it could be Kenny Ross Jr., it could be Neil McKenna. No, you wouldn't understand Neil McKenna. Not to say Foggy, you wouldn't understand him either. But they would have someone at the front of the bus where you know they'd, they'd sort of be looking out the front with the microphone, and it'd be at Redgate Corner on the Grand Prix bike. We're doing seven, uh, we 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 come into the corner at 140, back into second gear, down to 80 miles an hour, accelerate out there. Which all sounds quite good fun until you're on the bus doing 30 miles an hour, and it's flipping boring. It's not much fun at all. Anyway, these people, bless them, they pay their £10 just probably to see Nicky Hayden and get talked around the track. All day long. And, and I, I'm going to guess 40 laps during the day, this bus goes round and round and round. So at 5 o'clock, or it's about quarter to 5 one afternoon, Andrea Coleman, who was the person that started this charity off, comes running over to me, said, Steve, we need some help. The riders have all had to go off to the riders' briefing for the Grand Prix. This is Thursday before the British Grand Prix. We're at Donington Park. They've all had to go off for the drivers' briefing. Would you mind, we've got a bus full of people, ready to go, but there's no one to take them around. The driver's in it, but they need someone there to talk about the Grand Prix lap. Would you mind doing it? So I said, yeah, no problem. So I wander across there, and the, you can see him looking out the window. They go, what have you got here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, no, we were expecting some famous ride anyway. They've got me. So as I walked across, the old bus driver's there, leaning across his big steering wheel like this, thinking, oh, just had enough of this. You could see he is fed up with going around Donington Park. He heard the same old shit all day long. So I come wandering across, and, and the others were all sat on the bus looking, you know, we've got him. Anyway, I said to the bus driver, you look like you need a cup of tea, mate. He said, oh, bloody hell, I could die for a cup of tea. I said, well, I'll tell you what, give us your keys, go and have a cup of tea. You can't believe this idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, you can drive a bus, can you? I said, drive a bus, and all the people in the bus go, yeah, he's bloody truck, truck racing champion, he can drive a bus, so sure enough, this stupid bus driver says, well, there you go, keys are in it, I'll go and have a cup of tea, do a lap, and I'll meet you back over here. All right, off we go. So we set off, and it should have been one lap. Right? We started off sort of at the start, start, finish straight at Donington Park. And I should have been going on a MotoGP bike, but I just thought, sod it, let's have a bit of fun. So I just said to all the passengers, right, we're going to do a lap, but I'm not going to tell you what it's like on a MotoGP bike. I'm going to see how fast I can get this bus round there. <laughs> And you have got to do what I say. When we get to Redgate, I'm going to say to the right, and you've got to lean to the right. <laughs> if you don't, you're going to tip over, we're all going to die. <laughs> Which really did get their attention. Like, perhaps, like, you know, they all kind of slumped around, all of a sudden they're like this. So off we go. And after lap one starting lap two, which we should have been doing, I'm starting to feel it's got a bit of understeer, and I can get the tail hanging out a little bit. The brakes are a bit faded. Oh, I just, I, I forgot to say that the bus driver said, whatever you do, don't go over 50 k's, he said, because otherwise I'll get my taco, I'll, be, I'll get sacked. <laughs> so I said, trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> By lap three, we're really on it. So much so that all the people that are putting up the, the board and signage, you know, they put all the banners around the circuit. All the workers have now climbed over the arm <laughs> They got on the other side of the track to 
in a bus going around Donnell Park with all these poor people screaming and shouting. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, end of lap three, I did a two two forty eight, which wasn't a bad time on a bus. I don't think. And I was just about to start lap four because I think I could have got it down a bit more. When the track gets blocked and all the safety cars have come out and the officials are blocking and everything else, and I'm ushered into the parking area, which actually was a good thing because the brakes were just about to catch fire. <laughs> so I get ushered in there and we park up, and, and I'm getting a few nasty looks as you. I pull it up and everyone gets off the bus and they had an absolute ball. They really did, you know, they were pretty good at leaning and everything else and they were getting off. Apart from there was three people, that did, well, well, there was one, no, there was two people, two people that were sick, that was it. Um, and there's four, and then there was a Japanese couple, bless them, getting off the bus going, oh. <laughs> I don't think they realised what they'd taken on anyway. But it worked, they, got the, they definitely got the £10 worth, and they had a wonderful time, and they got a 248 lap in a bus around Donington Park. So I thought I did my bit for them, the bus was knackered obviously. The bus driver gets on and really didn't know what had gone on, apart from he kept saying, what's that smell? And that was his <laughs> And probably the sick that was at the back of the bus. So I go back to my hotel, I was staying at the Moat House Hotel in Donington Village, and this is the eve of the British Grand Prix, BBC had got two hours on Saturday, two hours on Sunday, proper research night for me, early night, school night, so I go back to the moat house, order room service and a half bottle of red wine, I thought just, you know, help me sleep and everything else. I'm sat in my room, this is 9.30 in the evening, and I get a phone call because the auction is taking place at the circuit for the leathers and helmets and everything else, and Keith Hewitt, a colleague of mine, is up and he said, um, Stavros, uh, he phoned me, uh, were you driving the bus today? I said, driving the bus? I said, I did a 2.48, bloody right up. <laughs> He said, well, if I was you, he said, I'd keep that quiet and keep your head down because I'm up at the track now and they've just shipped in pressure washers and sweepers because they're trying to clean the track up. And word is that you have been screaming around in a bus and caused all this bloody flipping to go around the track. I said, well, I went around a few laps. I said, but it was understeering a bit, but it was certainly, you know, the engine was running all right. Anyway, it turns out the next morning, Friday morning, bearing in mind at 10 o'clock, the Grand Prix bikes are due to come out on the track. They've spent all night cleaning up the circuit. And it wasn't until the Friday morning I realised that Brian Pallett, the circuit manager, um, Stuart Higgs, race director, and Paul Butler, the head of MotoGP, had been going around the track that night. Couldn't understand this fluid all around the track. The eve of the trial, they're going on there. It's all going on. No, it's not diesel. <laughs> not brake fluid it turns out and I blame the passengers for not leaning enough all the toilets have overflowed <laughs> <laughs> it's got a bit of a pooey steam hasn't it tonight I don't know. but this Donington Park British Grand Prix the night before the track the whole circuit is covered in that blue jays fluid and poo <laughs> and they're going around going, it's not decent <laughs> Well, I can tell you, I got into a load of trouble. I really did. I got a massive bulletin, official warning from the BBC. And it, it was not at all pretty. But luckily, that particular day, we had a, a camera on the bus. So, have any of you ever been to Donington Park before? Yeah. Okay, but you haven't liked this, I can assure you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
yeah, and, and it didn't even end there. Apart from getting this huge bollocking from Brian Pallet and all the people that have been licking their fingers and stuff like that, I then get uh, this again. My producer Belinda Rogers has always hated me. She's gone off on one this that, and the other because she gets a phone call from National Express. The CEO of National Express has been watching BBC. That goes out on the website and has just gone off on a massive one about how ridiculous the BBC would be portraying their bus going around Donington Park sideways and skidding around and everything else. So she drops me like a hot stone. I then get the CEO of National Express on the phone to me on the Monday morning, going off, going mad about how irresponsible and he's going to sue me and this and that and everything else. And I couldn't help but, because why he was so cross, because I don't know if you remember, they tipped one upside down in the service area on the M1, I think it was. And in the end, I got so fed up on him. I explained to him if his passengers lent like mine, they wouldn't tip their buses over. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I got out of it, as, as I always do. Um, I've written a book on Mr. Sheen. Um, I did that ooh, eight years ago, I guess. Uh, it's sort of, it's got a lot of fun stories, and it's also quite emotional, actually, because it was a real tragedy losing a great man. Uh, but we had a, an awful lot of fun out there causing chaos. I just wish I'd had his, his talent, but I was just the one that had the laugh. So if anyone wants a book later on, it's uh, up for grabs. Um, I've also got a theatre show that goes around the country. We're off all over the place in February, Burnham, which is near Bristol, I think, Lancaster, Bishop's Dorford, Maidenhead, Ivywood, Clapton, uh, Hunstanton, and Barry St. Edmunds. But uh, there's some posters around. If you've got any friends that are, are near the uh, Maidenhead area, give them a shout, because we'd love to see them. It's hosted by my daughter. Uh, hence it's called the Mad Tour, because it stands for My Adolescent Dad. Um, <laughs> I understand why. Um, but, yeah, I've had, a, like I say, a privileged life just getting into all sorts of trouble. Um, I could talk to you for seven hours, but you'd get bored and fall asleep, and I'd get a sore throat. Um, I'm just a very fortunate person that's had an awful lot of fun. So thank you very much for listening, and we're going to have a bit of a question and answer afterwards. <laughs> And he was aligned and toed and 
we want to get out of my way, which probably was twisting the knife because straight away Mark Marcus's mother sent a picture in for the press with Mark Marcus's bedroom when he was 12 years old, all covered in pictures, yeah. lots of pictures. So he was, wasn't married, didn't I? I don't think there was anything really going on until that point. And I think at that point, Mark Marquez, quite rightly, I guess, said, sod you, if you're going to be, if you're going to come out with that, I probably will hold you up. So I think that's where it probably went wrong. As far as the incident on the track in Malaysia, Valentino Rossi, I certainly didn't want to knock him off, but I think what it was, it was one of those, we've all done it, it was like, you know, it was like a, just move out, and just will you leave me alone? And unfortunately for Valentino, it didn't hit the brake, what it did, it hit his forearm, forearm, the brakes are so powerful on those bikes, it just pulled his arm and touched the arm brake, and down he went. And I guess the rest of his history, got that penalty, um, obviously starting at the back of the green. Do you think that was justified? I think I would have rather have seen a penalty at Malaysia if there was going to be one, because if he had been given a ride through, which would be the normal situation, he would have come back out, and I reckon he was going to finish sixth or seventh, which would have been better for him when he got to Valencia. But I also have sympathy with race direction because they wanted to look at every single camera angle and understand what went on from all parties. So they did. They interviewed everyone. The other thing you have to ask yourself, and we'll never ever know the answer, which is a tragedy, is that the lap times that were set at Valencia, Valentino Rossi might not have been better than Ford. Now, we'll never know that, but if you look at his lap time, he did a brilliant job, he came all the way through. But when he got through into that fourth position, he, he was losing time on the front side. So to this day, we'll never know. To me, the tragedy really was not having that time away. Yeah, sure. that, that's where we were all, yeah. we all lost out. Such a good season. It was, it's been a brilliant yeah. season. And so I've just come, I'm dressed by the, I've been at the BRBC dinner, and they're, they're talking about Formula One, which I've seen paint drying for winter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Um, um, that nobody knows how to fix it. They're all saying we need to fix it, but there was Damon Hill there, there was Derek Warwick, and they're all going, we've got to fix it. But no, what they're all saying, and I think what I agree with them, they want less downfalls, fatter tyres, and just get on with the racing, stop having their bloody DRSs. Yeah, but you now you've got the debate about customer engines or supplier engines, yeah. uh, you know, that aren't so expensive and there's a huge row going to brew about that. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get a divided field. Anyway, we won't uh, get too despondent. So anyway, that's my I'm terribly sad at Valentino because I'd love to see him get his 10th World Championship. Right. I think the only downside of him getting his 10th World Championship, I have whispered that he's going to quit. So maybe we benefit with another year. For another season. Because yeah. he, he, he's not going to get any easier for him, as we well know. That's a great, Barry Sheen actually, pretty much every bit of trouble and <laughs> is Barry Sheen. And when he was racing motorcycles, after his big accident at Silverstone, he got, he rode back with Suzuki's and he was sponsored by DAF Trucks. If you see those Suzuki's, they had DAF, uh, Sherwood DAF and DAF Factory, sponsored him with a transporter and paid him money and everything else. So truck racing turned up in the UK and after getting drunk, I think it was 1985, I think it was, Donington Park, the multi-part multi truck Grand Prix. Straight away, Barry was told he had to do it with, with that. Martin Rumble, actually, a lot of people don't realise, he drove a Renault at that particular event. Steve Blomquist was out there, uh, Rod Chapman, a load of people from different motorsports got involved with it through his involvement with manufacturers. And I was really pissed off because I wanted to do it. 
So I actually literally phoned up Mercedes Benz, got through to their communications department and everything else, and um, said, Barry Sheen's racing a DAF, uh, and I want to race in that event. And I'm sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet here. Barry Sheen was always far better motorcycle racer than I was, but whenever we raced in celebrity car races, which we did quite a lot, which again was foolish for people let us do it because we wrecked them, but I would beat him. So on kind of more wheels, I was faster than Barry, and I was in the truck. So I phoned up Mercedes and said, look, if you give me a Mercedes, I can be Barry Sheen and that. And they did. Um, luckily, they hadn't seen the bus race, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> and it went on from there. And, and I raced in the UK doing the sort of domestic championships with Mercedes-Benz UK. And then they built me a better truck, which was really quite competitive. And then I got a call to go over to Germany to test for the factory team, which back in the early days was two German drivers, Hegman and whatever, whatever, and a Czechoslovakia Czech driver. And I went out there and tested the truck, and we were about two sets back after, so they signed me up. And I had 11 years driving for Mercedes-Benz, where they actually paid me quite a lot of money. They used to give me three cars every six months, and BP gave me a credit card that got any fuel or anything from any BP station for nothing. And I used to drive around and fill up as often as I could because I used to be able to claim back 25 pounds on the back. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I filled my car up, I'd get some weeds and get money back. That's why I put the VAT office over here, Another question, I think someone, yes sir.
absolutely right. Mick Grant was a cheeking bastard. <laughs> In more ways than that, you're right, because he was riding a Kawasaki at the time, and they had an alloy tank, and as he went over the finish line and win the race, he went and like literally put a huge dent in the tank and when they measured it, it was dead on the limit, so without <laughs> and, and also Mick Grant, we go back to Mick Grant again, that same year in 1985, he beat me to the Super Stock Championship, which was fairly stock bike for himself. And I was riding an FZ Yamaha, he was riding a GSXR 750 Suzuki. And about five years ago, I went to Scarborough and the guy that owns that very bike with Mick Grant said, do you want to have a go on it just for me to see what it was like, the bike that beat me. And I went out on it and it revved about 3,000 revs more than it should have been. And I then found out it got a, a factory ignition kit on the, on the rev limiter, so the cheating bastard did me again. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, With Lorenzo's um, comments about the Marquez and Rossi incident, what's your thoughts about the relationship between the two of them for next year? It's not, I, it's not good, yeah. Uh, uh, Lorenzo... There was, a, there was a call up between them when they were... Well, it, it is nearly untenable, but I think Yamaha can't do a great deal about it because they've got both of them under contract. Um, and and I, I think that, uh, Jorge was very wrong of getting involved in the situation because he did. He wrote to the uh, arbitrary people about it, and I don't think it was his job to do so. So that was probably a little bit wrong. But you've got to you've got to remember a lot of these teams they they do drive for Yamaha, but they've all got other managements around them, and winning a world championship is very important. So I dare say Jorge Lorenzo's management said to him get over there and put your pennies work in because you know the difference between winning a world championship and not is probably billions of pounds. So there's a lot of commercialism that comes in here. Um, and I was at the Milan motorcycle show two weeks ago, uh, I think it's called, and it is very, very costly. But the Yamaha launch of their new models where they obviously have their two top riders, Jorge Lorenzo and Valentino Rossi, had to have separate dressing rooms, they had to come out to different ends of the stage. It is going to be very messy next year. I don't quite know what they can do about it. Oh, right. yeah. I think the scene is set. Okay. It, we could be in for a rip roaring. Well, I was going to say to you, apart from those comments, predictions for next year? Well, I uh, I have to say, I, I have a little bet with a group of people, and I had Mark Marquez down as a win again this year, because Mark Marquez, in my opinion, had his rookie year in his third season, because he's been faultless his first year. Right, everyone's going, he's going to crash his brains out to be in hospital place this season, he wasn't. Second year, he was solid as a rock. Third year, it all seemed to fall apart. Um, so I still think Mark Marquez is the fastest guy on the track. Whether he can, they can sort the Honda. One of the problems that Mark Marquez had this year, and I think what caused him some issues, Danny Pedroza missed about four races through injury, and Marquez has been using Pedroza as his bike setter up and such. He was, Mark, Danny did a far better bike, uh, Three race. you know, setting the bike yeah. up, adjusting it, sorting out how it suits the track. And I think Mark probably lost a bit of time there because they've got the wrong chassis in there. Um, but I said I, my heart would say Valentino Rossi, but my head would say Mark Marquez. And I'm afraid I'd say Jorge there and Valentino third if Danny hurts himself or whatever. That's sort of how I see them. And that's how I saw this year, quite frankly, that Mark Marquez had a nightmare early on. Yeah. One final question, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, sir, over in the corner there. How do you see the Brits doing in the MotoGP? Sorry, I missed that. How do you see the Brits doing? Right, okay. Well, we've got, obviously, um, we're more than pleased that young Danny Kent won the Moto 3 class, uh, which is fantastic. And I know everyone's going on, and we, we should. It's been 38 years since Barry Sheen 
while it, uh, uh, you know, that 1977. The only thing, and I, I don't want to pee on his cornflakes, but it is still the lower class. Uh, and Danny Kent's brilliant, and let's hope he comes up through the ranks, because realistically, to make it as good as Barry Sheen did, it's got to be the Premier Club, because that's what Barry won. But I'm very pleased that Danny Kent has a huge potential to go on and he's now in the City Shield. Um, Bradley Smith is incredible in his work ethic. Um, I don't think he's the fastest or the most talented rider out there, but he's the hardest working rider out there, and he's done a great job this year, um, finishing up fifth in the championship, fifth or sixth. Uh, Cal Crutchlow's had a blip this year. It didn't work for him. The Honda is good to do the Ducati for next year. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're punching above our weight, actually. We've got Eugene Laverty in there. For small country, yeah. we are, uh, bear in mind, there's not a single American out there next year. There's one Australian out there. So UK at the moment, <coughs> we're good. looking good as far as people out there, bums on seats. We just need to get a British rider on a factory bike. I think that's it. It's the next stage that we need to get to. And to do that, then Bradley Powell, uh, or Scott Redding, of course, have got to get on the podium somewhere along the line. And I think once that happens, then they'll potentially get a factory bike. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve. Hang on, one more. Sorry, oh, right, one, sorry one gentleman over here. Just Only because you've got a tie on. <laughs> Um, I sort of have, but I, they weren't really with him because I couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely gentleman, um, and I've been in bars and things with him, but I never really had a conversa conversation with him, so I had absolutely no idea with him. Just a quick uh, example of this, in the paddock one day, I got parked next to him at the Northwest 200, and he kept saying to me, She's a bit dirty dirty button. She's a bit dirty dirty button. <laughs> Which turns out, and I only got this sort of transcribed, she's a bit dirty down the bottom, meaning that the jetting was not real good when he got on the throttle. But she's a bit dirty down the bottom. Anyway, lovely man and sad that he's not with us anymore. Um, but what a great man. Got the uh, MBE for taking uh, supplies out to areas where yeah. they short yeah. never help. But yeah, just to say, I'm. Oh, really? I mean, you turned up. You, this must be a shit telly night. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed.